We're going to be this morning in Mark's Gospel, chapter 9, verse 30. Now, we found out the last time that Jesus healed a blind man, he healed a demon-possessed man, and this morning we're going to talk about childlike ministry. Childlike ministry, really a humility in ministry. How do we do ministry? What type of heart are we supposed to have? We speak about what ministry looks like on the outside, but this really talks about what ministry looks like on the inside, right? And as we go through this, I have to be quite honest with you, it wasn't really until this morning that I really finished the message because Jesus, he's so awesome. His teachings are very fluid, and we're going to find that. They morph from one subject to another subject. Jesus will speak about the minister, but then those being ministered to, then he'll go back to the minister again, and I'm trying to follow him. And, uh, you know, I'm just trying to be transparent from the pulpit. Some teachings are easier than others. I get what he's saying, but then there's a new challenge, a new level when you teach, is how do I make this understandable to the body? And when I say minister, please keep this in mind. It isn't some high and lofty position. Everybody here has the ability to minister. You're all believers. If you are a believer, at some point, like natural abilities, you'll, God will reveal to you what your spiritual gift is, or maybe a mentor will reveal that to you, and you use those gifts to God's glory. You are ministering. So no, nobody's left out of this equation. And I think sometimes, too, the, you know, his, his teachings, the disciples even had, they were with him for years, and they struggled with some of the teachings, and they tried to get it right, but I also think that he did it that way for a lot of reasons, one of them being so they wouldn't be built up with pride. And incidentally, the message speaks about to be like a child, which is more humility uh, without pride. So we're going to jump in, uh, check that out, and we'll see what goes on from here. So starting with verse 30, Matthew 9, verse 30. Then they departed from there and passed through Galilee, and he, Jesus, did not want anyone to know it. For he taught the disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is being delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise the third day. But they did not understand this saying and were afraid, were afraid to ask him. Now let me, and I just love doing this. I know I repeat this a lot. But I love going into all the Gospels. I want to know from all their, you know, I look, I look at this collectively, you know, the mosaic, put all the pieces together. What does the big picture say? So I jump into different Gospels. In Luke 9, the same situation, he adds that Jesus also said, let this sink down into your ears, he's telling the disciples. Well, not necessarily the organ, but into their spiritual ears, into their hearts. Understand this. It also said that this saying was hidden from them or veiled. Now, don't assume that that's from God. And we'll talk about uh, even as believers, some things we don't want to believe, even though it's staring us in the face, and it maybe it definitely isn't God's word. Matthew 17 says the disciples were extremely distressed over this. Now let's look at this in context. Jesus comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration. The three are riding a high, seeing Jesus in his glory and Elijah and Moses with him. Nine disciples in the valley are struggling to cast out a demon. Jesus comes and makes light work out of it. Of course they're going to have problems with this whole crucifixion and resurrection thing. This is, this is him. I mean, if there was any doubt, they see his glory, they see his deity, things that come alive in the Old Testament that they could never have dreamed about. So of course they're going to have trouble with this. However, his crucifixion was rapidly approaching by this time, and it said it in God's word. And they needed to prepare. Well, Christians, 
there's going to be some things that Christians struggle with too. And it's in God's word, right? Like the apostasy of Christianity. Now, I don't mean the church proper. The gates of hell would never prevail against the church proper. But Christianity in general, there would be an apostasy. And that's hard for Christians who are riding the high of scintillating ministry, going from one event to the other, being wowed and wanting their um, excitement always on a high level. That to them is hard to stomach. And there is something about the mind that when things are going well and we know something, we know that we know that we know that something is coming that can be difficult, the mind a lot of times tries to block that out, right? And you study that kind of stuff, you know it. They want to believe it. Same reason why even some Christians can be in a church for 10, 15, 20 years, hear the word of God, a situation comes up in their life, and in counseling or in some way in discipline, uh, the, the word of God is being applied to their situation and they resist it. So are we really much different from the disciples? And we should be better because we have the permanent sealing of the Holy Spirit. Right? Listen, do we believe everything that's written in this book? That's what it really boils down to. Do we want to follow our favorite parts? Do we listen to preachers who, by their own admission, leave out half of the Bible or more because they just want to give a positive message? That's going to cause us confusion. Because then, you know, the Bible tells us it's all inspired, right? If we don't believe the whole thing, we're going to have problems. There's going to be contradictions. So let's look further. Verse 33. Then he came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what is it you disputed or discussed among yourselves on the road? But they kept silent. For on the road, they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. Hmm. Well, we have to look at these following discussions and understand that in order for Jesus to allow these men, frail men, and some of his followers were women as well, for the church to rest on their shoulders, at least organization-wise, that there was some roots that had to be pulled out. Roots. Roots. My wife's a master gardener, and she has many, many gardens beautiful different themes in our home and on our property. And there was this one tree, skinny tree, right? And it grew up and it looked healthy on the top. But there was a lot of overgrowth. And what we didn't see until we moved a lot of the overgrowth was that this skinny tree had this, this predatory vegetation that grew up right next to it. And it started to wrap itself in a spiral around the trunk. And when it gained enough you know, a volume, when he gained enough of the perimeter, uh, it started to squeeze the tree and the trunk. And my wife was faithful, as she is to all her vegetation, to take this predatory vegetation, to unspiral it, and pull it out from the roots. But you know what? That tree today in our yard bears the scars of that root. What do I mean? I mean that you can see the bark is disfigured. It literally has a spiral scar on it you can see that the tissue inside of the bark has been moved and squished. There's a real object lesson of what these dangerous roots can do. And we can have those roots too. We have to be very careful. Because Satan is very patient. He sees something in us and there's a temptation to sin or some type of trial that we we fall apart when it happens and he's patient. He'll ebb and flow and ebb and flow and he'll wrap himself around until he finds an opportunity to squeeze. That tree thankfully made it, but some don't make it. 
Jesus had to pull that up by the root and get rid of it. See, the disciples had the wrong impression of greatness. And we see this in ministry today. Some of these guys, they're celebrity ministers. Where did that come from? That's actually something that only came about in the last few hundred years. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's an anomaly. It's an aberration. What I do find hysterical, and I can't help sometimes I read the Bible and I chuckle, because, you know, Jesus says to them, so uh, could you imagine being the disciples? You can't even whisper, you know, hey, Jesus is 50 paces in front of us. Hey, I, I'm, I'm, I'm better. We were up on the mountain. You know. Jesus is like, who are you saying over there? You don't think I knew? <laughs> right? So he, he tries to get them to come clean. And even Peter didn't want to take responsibility on this one. He started to learn his lesson and be quiet. But in Matthew's gospel, it says they do finally have a discussion with the Lord. Whether it's them or us, an inflated self-ego is a real problem when it comes to ministry. Listen, I don't promise a lot from the pulpit because I, be I, I never want to be that guy who breaks his promises, but I do promise you that if the Lord blesses us and we end up with another building, we're not going to be a satellite church. And they put really fancy names. It's another campus. But it's just another reason to get a man's face and his voice through a video feed to a church onto a screen like Max, Max Headroom. I'm dating myself, right? So some of you remember Max Headroom. It's just weird for a pastor, and I think it's ego-driven. If God blesses us with another building, I promise you I will raise up men, as they already are being raised up. I will send a human being into that other church. You don't need to see my face and hear my voice in another building. And you know what? In some Calvaries, they do that. I just don't agree with it. I don't agree with it. When we look at the situation with the disciples... Now, this is cool. I just love all these themes that come out of the Scripture. There's, it's like chewing something that... You just keep chewing it, and flavor just keeps coming out of it. Remember, Jesus took three up to the mountain, transfiguration. Can you imagine them coming down saying to the nine, listen, we were told not to say anything. You guys don't know what we saw up there. We're the A-team, right? The nine are struggling down in the valley. They can't cast out the demon. What it does seem was what the Lord did brought about a jealousy. Does God ever tempt us to sin, yes or no? No, he never tempts us to sin. James tells us that. Did the Lord do anything wrong by separating the three from the nine? Yes or no? No, of course not. What happened is the jealousy was already there. And that opportunity just brought up that jealousy to, to, to come out front and center. Sometimes we, we counsel couples and you know, the spouse will say, well, well, she made me do that or, or he made me act that way. Really? It's already there. But your spouse, hey, listen, you know, you live with each other long enough. We know how to press each other's buttons. It's already there, but that person brings it out. So there was a jealousy that had to be dealt with, right? Jealousy in the church, I got to tell you, it's, it's ugly. It's really not pretty. It's one of the most hideous sins, I think, worse than the obvious outside sins. Verse 35. And he sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, if anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Isn't that how Jesus came? You guys want to be first? You want to be greatest of all? Jesus was the son of God. How did he come? Serve me? No. He washed the feet of his disciples. 
Some of them had struggles with that. I can't believe you're doing this. Peter protested. You've got to do this, guys. This is something that you've got to catch as well. I'm, I'm showing it to you. You want to be great in ministry? Jesus didn't say it was a bad goal, but the problem was the heart behind the disciples and their methodology was faulty, and he had to deal with it. We could put this in today's terms. Want to be great in ministry? Take out the garbage. Clean the bathrooms. Sacrifice your time for a person in the church who's not very high profile. And don't trumpet it. A pastor should never ask anyone in his church to do some menial tasks that he hasn't done himself. Where does that leave celebrity pastors? You be the judge. Do you think these celebrity pastors with the mani-pedis are, are touching sponges or putting their hands in the garbage, you know, the bathroom garbage? I think not. You could tell I have a problem with that kind of stuff. It, it just bleeds through sometimes. I apologize for that. But listen, it, it goes all around. I mean, even, and I've seen ministry applications. One, a guy was with us for a few months, didn't sign up to do anything menial. He basically said on a ministry application, when you go on a vacation, I'm the guy to fill in on the pulpit on Sunday morning. You think I'm kidding? <laughs> I'm not kidding. And then on the other end of the spectrum, which is the, the right heart, I just want to serve. Whoever God has me in this church, I want to serve. Verse 33. Actually, where am I? <laughs> I got so excited I lost uh, my place. Oh, okay. Yes, thank you. <laughs> In Mark 9.35, Jesus speaks about being a servant. And the word is diakonos in the Greek, which really is a transliteration into deacon. It could also mean elder or pastor. Some ask, well, what do titles mean? Titles mean that we serve God and we serve in the church. That's really what they mean. And a minister ceases to be a minister when they stop ministering, when they become untouchable and unapproachable. Remember, let's not lose sight of Jesus was the ultimate servant. 36. Then he took a little child and set him in the midst of them, and when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. I love the Lord's style of discipleship. What did he do? He pulled up the bad root, but what did he then do? He replaced it with something else. And this is what I call the remove-replace principle. When we're discipling somebody, we don't just say, no, don't do that. That's not how we do it in this church. But now fill that vacuum, because vacuums always need to be filled. Sometimes if they're not filled with good things, they're filled with bad things. Not just don't do that, but what do we do? How do we do it? Here, let me show you how we do it. Now, I can, just picture, I can just picture the argument where Jesus is talking to the disciples, and many times, many times, many times, they would be arguing, and they did this more than one occasion, and they'd be talking amongst themselves, and, you know, I did this, and you did that, but you were up in the mountain, but you put your foot in your mouth a lot. And um, listen, I don't know what exactly was said there. I could just picture Jesus picking up a little child as he's walking towards the disciples that all of a sudden their voices start to get lower. And they're just looking at Jesus going, what's he doing? <laughs> Receive a little child in my name. And we see this reflective principle where we're supposed to come as children gentle, 
without prejudice, you know, trusting. This is what children do. And what happens is we're also to be like children when we minister. And I can just imagine again, everybody just quieting down and Jesus using this as an object lesson. We also read in the scripture where Jesus actually comes. I can just picture him going in the midst of them and setting the child down in front of them when he goes to speak. Thanks, buddy. I like to use illustration as many times as I can because I think that's really how we learn. And I like to also get us to think back of how it was like walking with the Lord and watching what he did. Picking up a little child, you know, he didn't have the technology we have, he didn't have all the fancy stuff that church, churches have today, but I guarantee you picking up that child and bringing it towards their group made an incredible impact. What did it take to do that? We can only do well when we emulate what the Lord does. So this is the way we take the Lord's name into the world, and this is how we receive the Lord. Remember, in that culture, children weren't really important. That culture, our culture is different. When the child grew up and they could work and they could do things and they came of age, almost the, the status changed of the children. But Jesus said, receive a little child in my name. Don't ignore them, don't overlook them, but also go out as a child and in gentleness. You know, when we go out and give the gospel, we're not to insult anybody into the kingdom. We're not supposed to humiliate them with our knowledge. I see a lot of that today in evangelism, and it's bothersome. It's good to have, you know, facts. I love following science and stuff, but, you know, as a new believer, when I've done that, when I've tried to dominate the conversation, I never want anybody to the Lord. And I had to realize the Lord worked on me. You're doing it wrong. That's not the way to do it. So these are the things to keep in mind. In Matthew 18, 3 through 5, again, it's a parallel gospel. Matthew 18, 3 through 5, Jesus says, he elaborates, he says, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. Did you notice the punch to this? <laughs> Here the disciples are saying, I'm going to be his lieutenant. I'll be on his right hand. I'll be on his left hand. No, I'll be on his right hand. You'll be on his left hand. Jesus is saying, you guys are wondering or worrying about who's going to be the greatest. You can't even get into the kingdom unless you humble yourself and become converted as this little child. Guys, you're over here. You got to start over here. You guys are way off base. Pride and arrogance will never enter the kingdom of heaven. 38. Now John, John answered him saying, teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name and we forbade him because he does not follow us. Jesus said, do not forbid him for no one works a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me for he who is not against us is on our side. For whoever gives you a cup of cold water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. So here's the disciple John. I like to speculate to why they say the things that they do. Maybe it was an uncomfortable situation and he was trying to divert attention. 
Maybe he was just trying to stick up and be the spokesperson for the rest of the disciples and say, Jesus, listen, we're dedicated to the cause. Look what we just did. Maybe Peter was trying to recover from his impetuous outburst and John was taking his place for a little while. But what John didn't realize is he was making the situation worse. It's not what the Lord wanted. Remember when it said Jesus answered on the Mount of Transfiguration and nobody, answered, nobody asked him a question? It also says here, John answered, nobody asked him a question. Sometimes it's better to just be quiet and listen. Here's the problem with this action, with telling the other people, hey, don't do this. What the disciples did in this situation was they exhibited sectarianism and jealousy for a like-minded ministry. Now, it's all speculation, but is it possible that the person they talked to who was casting out demons, right, probably very effective, is it possible that he was part of the original 70 that were sent out two by two, and maybe for some reason he couldn't commit fully to following with the 12, maybe for some other obligations, but he had a, knew enough of the Lord's teaching that he was able to be successful in casting out demons. I don't know if that's true, but it's good conjecture. And Jesus is saying, you guys are making a mistake here. It's not an exclusive club. Jealousy is an odious thing inside of the church. I think that we're blessed as a, as a body that we actually network with other churches that are not even Calvary chapels. You know, we're not to be competitive and to vanquish other like-minded ministries. It's not who gets to the top and how we can eliminate the competition and be the only kid on the block. That's not what we're supposed to do. Now, the only exception to all this is the cults. Somebody's going by and they're preaching false doctrine. Well, we have to refute that. And here's the funny thing is that we're not to be clones. Trust me, I wouldn't want a church filled with Joe DeProsimos. I would leave the church. <laughs> so I like the diversity here, all right? But when you look at some of the, 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 the cults, and I lived on a main road in East Brunswick, and they would come every Saturday morning, various types, and they were cloned. I knew after two or three visits what the shtick was, what scriptures they were going to use, what pamphlets they were going to hand out, how the, the dynamics were between the lead person and the person actually watching. They're clones. That's not what we're called to be. Verse 41. He speaks about whoever gives you, disciples, a cup of cold water to drink in my name. Because you belong to Christ, as surely I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Now, a cup of cold water, once the well was built, they didn't have plumbing, okay? And they didn't get a water bill from the municipality. What happened was there was a well that was dug, and water, fresh water would come up, and they would now tap that well for as long as they could until it went dry. So in a sense, if you gave, and it was, since it was down into the earth, you know, the climate was hot, but if it was deep enough, the water was nice and cool and refreshing. So to give a cup of cold water to anybody, the disciples or anybody carrying the Lord's name, didn't cost anything really. Really seemed like nothing, but it was extremely refreshing. And I think the point here is that no matter how small or no matter how diverse the help God sees it, and he takes note of it. We're not to despise that, right? I mean, you, you could be in this fellowship and have a disability and say, I can't, I'd love to do the box-moving ministry, but I can't. You know, I'm, I'm confined to this, or I have bad knees or whatever, but I can write out postcards. I can be encouraging to people. I could be part of that prayer group. Nothing to despise. That is awesome. That is huge in the kingdom of heaven. So, again... Can we? See, this is like it was written yesterday, because we, we look at these, and then we look at ministry today, and we say, gee, I wonder if anybody read that before they started that real fancy ministry. 
verse 42. So I would ask you that, you know, even if you could give just a little bit of help in your community, in the name of Jesus, or in the church, hey, that's wonderful. We'll, we'll take all the help that we can get. Jesus says in verse 42, now he kind of goes back to what he was talking about before John, I don't know, maybe interrupted him. So verse 42 says this, And whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand makes you sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life maimed than having two hands. To go to hell, or Gehenna, right, literal hell, and he, and he qualifies this for those that have been reading books that say there is no hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot makes you sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than having two feet to be cast into hell, thrown into hell, right? And into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye makes you sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes and to be cast into hell fire where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. I was always taught that if Jesus repeats himself because he doesn't have to, something to take note of. For everyone will be seasoned with fire and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? Have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. So Jesus goes back to this discussion about the little ones. Now again, it does seem like there's some morphing, some changing that goes on. He's speaking about he holds the child. He's speaking about children. But he's also speaking about their hearts and to be like the heart of that child. So he's speaking about his servants. And I have no doubt that he's also speaking about those that are vulnerable in society, hence the whole thing about the millstone. Now, just so you understood, there were small stones in those days, and there were huge millstones. <laughs> You're a good swimmer? Okay, these things were a few thousand pounds, and the donkeys would bring them around and around in a circle, and they would grind the grain. Uh, lethos, I believe, is the word in the Greek. And he said, it's better, hey, listen, hang it around your neck, throw somebody, they're not... I've been in, in a few, as a kid, close situations where I almost drowned. I'm not real great in the water, but it's scary. It's scary. I remember horse playing, and I was held under by a, a, an older person, and, and I lost all my air, and all I could see were the bubbles. And uh, if any of you have been in that situation, it's terrifying, because we weren't designed, you'll find out real quick, to actually get oxygen through the water in our lungs. Fish do that. Thank God I, I came up and, and I was okay. And I get, I've talked to some of you who've had similar situations. So if that was literally the case, a person being thrown into the sea with this millstone, all you can do is claw your way and you're just going down, down, down. Eventually you lose your air. Cruel? No. Why does Jesus tell us this? Because he's mean? Hey, this, is, this is a part of Jesus I've never read before. It's because he doesn't want us to go there. Right? He's giving clear instruction to his disciples. Sometimes ministry can be, you get a following, it can be a drug. Just like anybody else in the world, just like any other high. It's the wrong reason, the wrong reason. Remain servants. Don't stumble people. 
verse 18 in Matthew, I'm sorry, chapter 18, 10. I'm just going to read one more and then kind of put it together. Matthew 18, 10. Again, Jesus elaborates. He says, Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Listen, God sees everything, but there's some type of direct line between these little ones, these vulnerable ones, the angels, and the Father in heaven. The speculation, but does it mean that in the judgment, the angels actually might act as prosecutors for those who are predators? Just, just an idea, just a thought. Justice is important. When we look on the news and we see what's going on in the world, we realize this, this world is devoid of justice. And we're starting to see lack of justice even in this country. We have a natural desire for justice. Here's the funny thing. We don't want justice for ourselves. We want leniency. But the good news is that Jesus paid for all of our sins at the cross. So God can have his justice, and we can also have eternal life. That's the beauty of the cross. However, for those that refuse, uh, there awaits them a hell. Now, Rob Bell, I try not to call him a pastor, because in my eyes, he's not a pastor. He's written books like Love Wins. That's such a warm, fuzzy title. I want to read it, Love Wins. It's deceptive. In his idea, in his universal idea that there's nobody goes to hell. This is how complicated the doctrine of hell is, or complex, that we see hell spoken of really in the form of Hades as a temporary place in Luke 16. Then we go to Gehenna, which this word hell is translated in the Greek, and then we go to Limnepur in Revelation, which is actually the lake of fire. Now, let me go to Gehenna for a second. He does quote Isaiah 66, 24, where it says, the fire is not quenched and the worm does not die. This is a scripture all the way back in Isaiah's day that spoke about the coming last battle where all the Lord's enemies will be vanquished. However, there was a situation where outside of Jerusalem, there was this valley, right? And uh, people would sacrifice, human sacrifice to Molech. It was really sick what the Israelites were doing. You wonder why God judged them because what they were doing was horrific. So there was sacrifices, people started throwing garbage in there, um, there was these fires that were burning, and then anything that, anything that was discarded. Even, it's really sad, those that couldn't afford a proper burial, they were thrown into, it was a disgusting place. Now, those that didn't actually make it all the way down into the fire, maggots would, I hope you guys are completely digested, I, I do have to exegete the scriptures all the way. The word worm that Jesus uses is a maggot worm. And what would happen was there was this constant situation where fires would be burning continuously and flesh was, was constantly being overrun by maggots and they would devour the flesh and leave just the bones. And this was a continuous situation. So Jesus took that illustration, which was, which was odious to the people, and he made a, an application to the final estate of those who go to hell. So what about Hades, Gehenna, and Limnepur? Hades is a temporary place, right? And Revelation 20 tells us that even death and Hades will be thrown into the lake of fire. It's really not confusing. It kind of brings me of the, the jurisprudence system. You are charged with something, some type of crime. You go to the police station where there's a local lockup, but they don't have long-term facilities. You stay there until you either pay a fine and get out and see the judge, or you go to see the judge directly. Once you see the judge or the jury and judge, they determine 
if you in fact are guilty and what your final estate of your guilt is. You either go to Middlesex County or you go to Trenton or you go to some permanent lockup where you may spend the rest of your life depending what you did. So Hades is that temporary situation. Limne Pur is this everlasting lake of fire. It doesn't sound appealing. Constantly the fires are burning. Constantly is a torturous situation. It's, it's the hell that we understand, but it's the final estate, and that's found in Revelation 20. The bottom line is once you go there, you can't get out, so don't go there. It is what it is. I'll leave you with this. I've heard the expression, it's better to believe in Jesus Christ than the gospel, but then when you die, you're wrong. That's good. You lived your life as a good person, right? Better than not believing in the only way of salvation, rejecting it, and being wrong. That's a bad, that's a, that's a nightmare. Waking up in eternity after you die and realizing, oh wow, this stuff is real. All those kooky evangelists, they were right. So just keep that in mind. Jesus says, remember, he says a few things, and this is where this reflective principle comes in. Don't stumble the little ones, right? Don't stumble somebody. Listen, don't even stumble a new believer. We have an awesome responsibility. Those in ministry, we have to restrict ourselves from maybe what could be normal activities, but because we don't want to stumble somebody who's watching us, we restrict our lifestyles, right? And hey, if you don't want to do it, then don't join. But if you do, you have to be very careful not to stumble somebody into sin. Since they, well, the pastor's doing it, then I can do it. Maybe not understanding. He also says, not only don't stumble them, but watch your own sins. Remember that reflective principle. Now, did he, does he really mean, this is figurative, does he really want us to walk around with no hands and no eyes, and this is how we assemble this morning in church? Obviously not. Because the truth is that if your eye causes you to stumble because you have a problem with things that you see, pluck it out. Okay, it happens again. You pluck that one out. You got two of them out. Now you can't see anything. You can still have the thoughts in your heart. So really, everything emanates from the heart, but Jesus was making a figurative statement. Whatever it is in your life that's really causing you to sin, get rid of it. Is it a relationship? Every time you're in this relationship, you're sinning. Is it a place that you go with your peers? Every time you go to this place, you sin. Cut it off. Get rid of it. And especially for those in ministry, to the disciples, you want to be used by God? you got to do certain things. It's just the way it is. Verse 49 and 50. Last two verses. For everyone will be seasoned with fire. Every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Salt is good. But if the salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? Have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. Salt. We sometimes use it as a flavor. Um, some of us have too much sodium in our diets, and we go to the doctor and they say, hey, cut back on it. But it was much more back in the day. Without refrigeration, salt was used as a preservative. I, I enjoy the, the science of it. It has to do with osmotic pressure. It has to do with hypertonic tension outside of the cell versus intracellular. And basically what happens is there's this solution that takes place, and the salt solution wicks the, uh, the water from inside the cell of the microbe, killing it. It desiccates the microbe. All right, that's the scientific part of it. But just suffice it to say that salt is a preservative. It keeps the bacteria at bay. Salt, let's look at the symbolism. The way he's speaking of it keeps evil in its boundaries. It's a preserving effect. 
We are the salt of the earth, the Bible tells us. We have the Holy Spirit, the indwelled Holy Spirit. We carry God's word. And by extension, the disciples and us were an extension really of God when he sends us out. We're to bring the Holy Spirit into the world, to the lost, to the saved. We're to bring the gospel. right? We're to bring the word. Be careful not to lose those salty properties. Fire is purifying. Fire uh, destroys. It, it purifies. In 1 Corinthians 3, we look at works. The Apostle Paul speaks about it. He says, only what's of God will be left. Everything else will be burned up. Some people will definitely go to heaven, but the rewards won't be there because the rewards were done with poor motives. But the true works will remain. Now that we have the symbolism, let's do the next two verses and then and conclude. Number one, every one, key word, one, every person will be seasoned. I looked up my Greek lexicon Really, seasoned is a, a general way of discussing it, but literally it says everyone will be salted with fire. Every sacrifice will be salted with salt. So, number one, the person in ministry will be tested. They will be tried, bar none, in order for God to be able to use them. And every Christian will be salted as well. Now, the, the person, we get salted, but in addition, everyone's sacrifice will also be tested for worthiness. What are we giving God? What are we offering God in terms of our time or whatever the case may be? Are we giving God our best? Or are we saying, Lord, in the refrigerator, I have some leftovers for you? Oh, we would never say that to God, but maybe we do that with our actions. So we will be salted, we will be tested, but also our sacrifices will be tested as well. The second principle, salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, it's good for nothing. In Matthew 5.13, Jesus is even more powerful where he says that we're the salt of the earth. If we lose that property, we're, we're not good for anything except to be thrown out of the house and to be trampled underfoot by men. Again, in ministry, we are reflections of Christ. We cannot lose these properties because we are carrying Christ into the world. And three, have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. We're to live as ministers, as extensions of Christ and his word, not feckless, not worldly, but also to live at peace with others who are doing the same. goes back to the thing about the disciples saying, hey, you're not part of us. We're cool. We're 12. You know, you, you, we didn't give you the whole knighting and the kiss or ring thing. You can't do it. No good. No good. Have salt in yourself, but also be at peace with one another. Now, as we look at this, there's a few things that we can kind of sum it up to. Childlike humility, childlike ministry, that's the first thing. Two, to be done without jealousy or party spirit. Three, not to look down on another's contribution, no matter how small. Four, that our actions don't cause another person to sin. And five, to also keep our own sin in check. To maintain God's word, the Holy Spirit, the gospel, to maintain that saltiness, to be continuing to be a, a true reflection of the representation of Christ. You know, I don't look at this, just so you know, I don't, Look at this as, oh, gee, i got to preach this today. It's going to hurt some feelings. It's going to be convicting. I think it's awesome because I know for me, sometimes we need to have a gauge. We need to look at something and say, how am I doing? So I look at this as a blessing, you know? It's like the few, the proud, right? You go into the military, they weed people out because if they have to go into battle, they need to be in shape. They need to have a camaraderie spirit, right? They need to be a team spirit. The Navy SEALs, you ever watch those videos, what they have to do, how many people wash out? We're going to fight the Lord's battles. 
Now, it doesn't mean we're going to go on a literal crusade and start you know, slaying people with the sword, but it does mean that when we go out into the world, we need each other. We need to come together as the church. We need to build each other up. We need to disciple each other, right? So this, to me, is exciting. And God expects a little bit more out of us than he expects out of the world. Why? Because he's sealing us with his Holy Spirit. There's really no excuse for a Christian not to tap into God's knowledge and wisdom and helps and and all that kind of stuff because he's given it to us freely. So some heavy stuff here this morning, but I look at it as very encouraging. And let me just make this clear as well. If you are truly a believer in Christ, you've trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, there is no hell for you. This is something we read (laughs) about about others and, and a reality. And there's no help for us, but we also want those that we go to college with, our family members, our peer groups, we want them to have the same opportunities and the same grace that we were given. We want that to go to them. And that's where the excitement of sharing your faith comes in because you know the, re- the reality, you know the truth. You don't want to see anybody else go through this. This is liberating and exciting. And we're going to give an opportunity at the end of the service for anybody who doesn't know the Lord to come forward because Jesus has already died for your sins, that you would escape and pass over that fire, and you go into the kingdom, and God says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, your word.